Well, last week we uh, introduced an analogy, uh, the analogy of the pots. We have the uh, righteous pot. We talked about how many of us spend our lives thinking we've got to become this, when in reality, this is what we really look like. Uh, we're flawed, we're cracked, we've got holes, we've, uh, we leak. Uh, we're not really that impressive to look at. But because of that, we think that we're unusable. Um, we're flawed. God can't use us. And so we think until we become righteous in all our appearances and all our actions, all our thoughts, our behaviors, God can't use us. And so we, we talked a lot about that last week. And the truth is we have to come to grips with the fact that we're flawed. And so we're beginning a study, a series where we're going to look at six different men. And we're going to look at these characters from the scriptures from the Old Testament and see how flawed they really were, but yet how faithful they were and how God used them in spite of their flawedness and all their faults. This is a, it's, it's interesting. The more I study this, the more I read about it, the more I prepare for it. And fortunately, um, a week, a week from now, you know, we are off next week and then the following week, um, I will, I will not be teaching. We're going to be a, it's going to be a team teaching approach. So I'm kind of relieved because the more I study it, the more it hammers me between the eyes, uh, just how flawed I really am and just how much I need to grasp the concept of my flawedness, because it's important for us to understand that if we're ever going to truly be used and recognize the fact that when I'm flawed, as a believer, if I can come to grips with the fact that I am in Christ and that when God looks at me, he sees me through the righteousness of Christ. And that's really hard to grasp, guys. It's really hard to see that because, as I said last week, we see our flawedness every stinking day. We see all our mistakes and we even have them pointed out to us by loved ones. But the reality is, if we can ever see ourselves as this, the way God sees us, I really think it will change the way we look at our lives and the way we live our lives. This is really, uh, if you want to boil it all down, this is a message about works, righteousness, and grace, and how we spend so much of our adult life as men and as believers trying to work our way towards righteousness, change our behavior, do something to make ourselves what we think we're supposed to be. And we use all these different models. We could look around this room and pick out guys and go, well, if I could just be more like him, then I would be used by God. If I could be more like him, if I could be more like Ted, if I could be more like whoever, we pick out people and we think if I could just be that, then God would use me. But that's contrary to what the New Testament teaches us. Because the truth is, even those men we look at, admire, and we think are righteous, we think have all the qualities we're looking for, they're just as flawed as we are. They have just as many cracks as we do. But God's using them in spite of that. And he wants to use every man in this room in the same way. We talked about last week the fact that it's not the container that's important, it's what's in the container. And if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, it's what's inside you that matters. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ that gives you value, not you, not the container. 
And what's amazing to me is that God would choose to use me or any man in this room to do anything for his kingdom. He doesn't have to, but he does. And it's because of the value we have in Jesus Christ. We have value. We have worth. We are clothed clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have all the power we need to live the life we've been called to live. But we will not do it in self-effort. We will never accomplish it just by working harder. And yet that's how many of us approach the Christian life. We're okay with the fact that God saved us through Jesus Christ and we have salvation through faith alone, through grace alone. But somehow we think sanctification, the pursuit of righteousness, now becomes our job. I got the ticket to heaven, but I got to live this life on this earth now by myself, in my own strength, through my own effort. And that's why most of us are extremely tired. And if not tired, we're frustrated and we're burned out. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at some men this next few weeks. And we're going to start out with one that is you're very familiar with. And, but I'm going to take a little bit different approach to the life of uh, Moses. And I want to see us look at Moses a little bit differently than we typically could. And the hard thing for me was to pick out what to look at in a life of a guy who did a lot. Uh, Moses accomplished a whole lot in his lifetime. And there's a lot of good. There's a lot of bad. There's some flaws. There's some things that he did that I've never done. I've never murdered anybody. Um, I've thought about it, but I've never pulled it off. He did. He was a man who was incredibly multifaceted. Uh, and, and again, we could cover a lot of, about his life, but we don't have time. We could talk about his birth and deliverance. We've all heard the story of, you know, Moses getting put in the basket and being saved and floated down the river. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, rescues him, and he gets raised in Pharaoh's household. And he's delivered from this death sentence that's, that's on all the children of Israel by the Pharaoh. We could talk about how he grew up in Pharaoh's house, how he became part of Pharaoh's family, and he became an Egyptian really through and through, even though he was a Hebrew by birth. We could talk about the time he killed the Egyptian. He goes to visit his Hebrew relatives. Something triggered in him, and he began to get this idea that he was made for something else. And he goes and visits the Hebrews who are in slavery. He sees an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers, and he just impulsively kills the guy which led to him having to run away. And he flies off to Midian. And he ends up spending quite a few number of years there in his wilderness years, hiding from the murder rap that he's got because now Pharaoh's after him. And he's, he's in hiding. And he becomes a shepherd. We could talk about all the stuff that went on there. We could talk about his calling, the burning at the, the burning bush, and how he met God at that bush. And he got that call. And you've heard sermons about, you know, how he, you know, the Lord called him. And he says, oh, no, I can't speak. I'm not your guy. Get somebody else. I, and he was reluctant. And he didn't want to do it. But then we could talk about the fact he finally did what God called him to do. And he spent 40 years leading the people of Israel through the wilderness after he accomplished the 10 plagues and after he parted the Red Sea and after he got water from the rock and after he got the 10 commandments. I mean, this, we could spend so much time talking about this guy. He could be the whole series. But this morning, what I want to do is look at a, a passage that 
um, is a little bit obscure and, and reveals some things about him that I think are, are really important. And we're going to be in the New Testament. We're also going to go back to Exodus and look at the Old Testament. But when I look at Moses' life, here's some things that I discover about him. Here's some things or characteristics I see in this guy who was incredibly used by God, but who is incredibly flawed in a lot of ways. And these are just things I I get out of the the reading of his life. Number one, he's a natural-born leader. Even though he reluctantly said, I don't want to do this, I can't speak, I'm not your man, I can't... I, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't, I can't get, get, get my brother to help me. He was a natural born leader. Nobody else could have led a million plus people through the wilderness, especially a million plus stubborn, stiff necked, belligerent people through the wilderness for 40 years. He was a natural leader. He also struggled with incredible insecurity. Here's a guy, again, that was leading a million-plus people, men, women, and children, for 40 years with all kinds of rebellion, all kinds of sin, all kinds of stuff going on, and he had incredible insecurity about his leadership skills. And you see it over and over again, the way he goes to the Lord, the way he didn't want to go to begin with, but then how he kept going back and and complaining, and, Lord, what what am I going to do with these people? Why why me? Why would you choose me? Incredible insecurity. He was also marked by a lack of confidence. You know, he just didn't always have a whole lot of confidence, and I don't blame him. I would have bailed on these people day one. You know, as soon as they started complaining about the food, I'm out of here. You know, God, God provides it, and they're, they're wanting to go back and eat leeks and onions back in Egypt. And I just said, hey, go. Have fun. Uh, I'll eat the manna and keep going this way. But he lacked confidence. He was incredibly impulsive. Uh, you see that in just the killing of the Egyptian. You know, here, here's this guy. The first time he goes to visit his relatives and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he, he just falls off and kills the guy. He's impulsive. You, know, you see it when he smote the rock. He, he, he was impulsive and he also had a little bit of an anger problem. Anybody in here have an anger problem? You know, he, he really did. He, he got angry at the people. He got angry at God. He got angry at circumstances. He, he had an anger problem. He was flawed. He also was a saint who had a real problem with sin. He was flawed. He's just like you and I. This guy didn't even have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But yet somehow God was able to use him to do something fairly incredible in spite of the fact that he was flawed and he ended up being incredibly faithful. And you know, as we've we've discussed as a team, these these groups of men, the thing that we want to get across is we don't want to paint a picture of he used to be flawed, now he's perfect or he's faithful and no longer flawed because that would be a lie and it would be not untrue. He was flawed to begin with. He was flawed when he died. He was flawed. Why? Because he was human. You see that in David's life. You see that in Isaac's life. You see that in every man in the scriptures that they began flawed, they ended up flawed because of their human nature, because of their sin nature. But the difference was how God was able to use them in spite of them and transform them and mold them into the kind of men that God wants to use. He loves to start with this. He loves, and he, you know, the fact is, 
I have to keep reminding myself in my good days that I am still this. Because otherwise, what happens? I get really cocky. I get really confident that, man, I'm really doing great things for God. I'm really moving in my walk with the Lord. I am really getting on top of this righteousness thing. And suddenly, I no longer realize that it's not me. It's what's in me. And it's what I'm clothed with. It's the righteousness of Christ. And I suddenly start getting cocky in and of myself. That's a dangerous place to get. So I need to keep remembering that I am flawed. And it's my flawedness that allows the power of God to work through me. That's how God works. I love this quote from Chuck Swindoll on his uh, biography of Moses. Listen to what he says. Over and over as you read his book... You will find yourself nodding with understanding and compassion, thinking, been there, done that. Time and time again, you'll smile as you find yourself portrayed in the life of a very ordinary human being who, by God's matchless grace, was able to accomplish some pretty remarkable things. So if it's a boost of hope you need these days when your energy is drying up and your money is running short, this is a book for you. He's basically saying, read the life of Moses. Why? Because he's just like you. He's got as many flaws and hang-ups as you do. He's just as screwed up in a lot of ways as you are. And yet, God used him. And my hope and my prayer for you, for me, is that we will come to grips with the fact that God so wants to use you. God so wants to take your flawedness and turn it into faithfulness and turn it into great things for him so that he gets the glory. And you have to admit at the end of the day, I don't know how that ever happened. It had to be God because it certainly wasn't me. That's what he wants to do in my life and in your life. So we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at this this guy and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 34. So go ahead and open up there. Exodus chapter 34 starting in verse 27. And before we read the passage, I ran across this poem just recently. This was written by a guy who was part of a, it's anonymous, but he was part of the human development movement, you know, just kind of how we can make ourselves better. And this is a poem he wrote near the end of his life. Listen to what he says after years of trying to make himself better. He says, please hear what I'm not saying. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear, for I wear a mask. I wear a thousand masks. Masks I'm afraid to take off, and none of them are me. Pretending is an art that's second nature with me, but don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. I give you the impression that I'm secure, that all is sunny and unruffled with me, within all as without, as well as without. That confidence is my name and coolness my game, that the water's calm and I'm in command and that I need no one. See, this is written by an unknown member of this human development or human potential movement, somebody who, again, spent years of his life trying to make himself better through human effort. He was sold out on self-confidence. That you can just be self-confident and make yourself better. You've probably read books about that. You know, just think it and it will happen. Be self-confident. He built his life on the lie of self-achievement. If I just work harder, I can do and be whatever I want to be. It's all about me. 
And you'll notice the reoccurring theme here is self, self-achievement, self-confidence. He spent years trying to muster up more self-esteem. You know, we, just, we think the answer to all our ills is just a better self-esteem. Think better about yourself. Think more highly of yourself, and you'll be more high. You'll think, you think it, and you become it, is the idea. He spent years trying to improve his self-image. And yet, look at what he wrote. He admitted, he came to a point in his life where he finally said, I'm nothing but a man wearing masks. I am not what I appear to be. I, I, I have, may have you fooled, but I don't have me fooled. And you know, the more I think about this, guys, I really think that's how we live our lives as Christians. And it's really been interesting over the last, really, three or four months, everything that I've been reading has been driving me in this direction. And it's to the point where I, I just can't seem to get away from it. Everything I listen to, every CD someone gives me, Every book I pick up, everything I begin to read, and even people I visit with, we have these conversations, and it keeps coming back to this issue of the masks we wear and how we fake it and how we want everybody to think we're okay, but inside we are dying and we are exhausted and we don't think we can keep it going. And so we get up the next day and we just keep doing it again and we put on the mask. And we're unwilling to admit reality, what's really going on in our lives. Like this guy, we're, we're practicing increasing self-control, but it isn't working. Have you ever reached a point in your life, your Christian life, where you sit there and go, this does not work? I know all the scriptures, and I can quote them, and I can even counsel people with all these scriptures. I'm not sure I even believe them because they don't seem to work. I still struggle with the same sins I struggled with 10 years ago. I still have angst over issues that I should be over by now. What am I doing wrong? What do I need to do differently? And so we buy yet another book. We go to yet another seminar. We, we try to figure out what is it I'm not doing that I need to be doing or what am I doing that I need to stop doing? It's all self-effort. But see, in the middle of doing all that, we don't want anybody to know that we're struggling, so we just put on a mask to let them think that all's well. And it's the old game we play, and we play it really well, of Sunday morning, getting out of the car, walking into church. Hey, how you doing? Great. I'm great. How are you? Great. Couldn't be better. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're stressed out. We're, we just got out of the, the car and had a fight with our wife. We were this close to smacking one of our kids for being late, for losing their shoes, for back-talking to us, and we're about to backhand them. But we get out of the car, we walk in the church, somebody says, how are you doing? And we say, I am just great. And we put on the smile, we put on the mask, and we act like we're something we're not. And we have become experts at this, guys. We've become experts. 
The result of this man who wrote that poem and the result of our lives is that we live lives behind masks. We don't want anybody to really know who we are and what we're going through because we're afraid if they find out, they will be disappointed and they will think less of us. But here's the sad thing. Here's here's one thing I've learned over the years is the more transparent you are, the more transparent the other person becomes. And it lets the guard down. And it's like, you too? You struggle with that too? You are kidding me. That's exactly what I struggle with. But see, as long as I keep up the front, you're going to keep up the front. Because if you think I'm perfect, you're not about to let, let me think you have any flaws. And so we play the game. And we wear the mask. And we go through life acting as if everything's okay when it's not. And it's a life built on lies. And here we are, believers, sons of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the Holy Spirit within us, the power of the Holy Spirit available to us, and we are living a lie. We're afraid to admit that I don't have it all together. I really don't know what I'm doing here. It doesn't seem to be working. I'm really anxious. I really don't have the faith I think I should have. I really don't love like I should love. I really don't have patience like I should have patience. I don't really have this thing that they call Christianity wired like I think I should and like I think everybody else seems to have. So we put on the mask and we walk around acting like I'm okay. Everything's great. Couldn't be better. And you know, I've seen this over the last three years since I've come on staff here at the church, and I don't know what happened when I came on staff, but um, maybe it was a curse. But I've had more couples come to me with their marriages falling apart, and I'm shocked. Why do you think I'm shocked? Because they looked like they had it together. They're not the couple I expected. They're not the couple that looked like they were screwed up. They looked like a couple that had it all together. They were in a small group. They, they looked good, smelled good, acted good. Their kids were in Sunday school. They came to church every Sunday. They were active. They were involved. And suddenly, it all blows up. And we get shocked and we go, wow, didn't see that one coming. Why? Because they had perfected the art of wearing the mask And I'm convinced of this one thing, if I'm convinced of anything, the Christian community today is in desperate need of transparency. You know, we talked about it last week. Jesus Christ didn't come to the the righteous. He didn't come to save those who don't need saving. He came to save the lost, the dying, the needy, the hungry, the desperate, the weak. And until we admit that's what we are, we'll never really enjoy what he's got to give us because we're acting and we're playing and we're performing, but we're not experiencing all that he's given us to experience. I came to Christ when I was seven years old. I am 53 now. I have spent so many of those years in Christ living off human effort and not enjoying everything he has for me to enjoy. And at this point in my life, guys, I'll be real honest, I don't want to live any more years trying to pull off Christianity because it doesn't work. 
not the Christianity, the self-effort. It does not work. And I, if, I, if you hear anything else this morning, we have got to come to grips with letting it hang out. I don't have it together. I am not perfect. I am flawed through and through, and I'm not afraid to admit it. Because that's when God steps into the picture. When I finally say, I can't do this anymore. And he says, great, because I can. And I will. Watch me work. Watch me work. See, God, God isn't interested to see how strong you are. God isn't interested to see how powerful you are, how, how much self-determination you have, and how much self-effort and guts and grit you can bring to the table. He wants you to come and say, I have nothing to offer. And he goes, great, I have everything to give. Watch me work. And you quit working so hard. It's a huge difference, guys. We have mastered the art of hypocrisy. The art of hypocrisy. Here's what a hypocrite is. I hate this word. I really do hate this word. Uh, because I know God hates hypocrisy. And I know I've got too much of it in my own life. But look at the definition. It's one who pretends to be someone they are not, plays a part, or pretends to be better than they are, having a pretense of virtue or piety. It's a mask wearer. It's somebody walking around looking right, but it's a fake. It's an act. It's a display. In, the, in Paul's day, a hypocrite was an actor. That's what the term meant. It's what you called an actor because he was performing. He was playing. He was faking it. He was wearing a mask, and that's how they performed. They had masks that they wore. And so they would get behind the mask, and they would be somebody that they were not. And they simply played a part. And my fear is that many of us today, many of us in this room, are walking around with masks pretending we're something we're not. When on the inside, we're something completely different. Actors wore a mask to obscure, obscure their true identity. And I know you're sitting there going, when are we going to talk about Moses? Well, this all has to do with Moses. It all has to do with Exodus chapter 34. Well, what, what, are the, what are the masks that we wear? You know, every day we get up and we, it's like we have a closet of masks that, that we can choose from. And we go to the wall and we, okay, I'm going to wear this one today. Uh, depending on who we're going to be around. If we're going to church, we wear one mask. If we're going to work, we wear another mask. It depends on the context and the, the people that we're around. But we have different masks that we wear. Here's just a few that hit me. You know, the mask of contentment. We act like we're content. We act like, I'm fine. I don't need anything else. I'm great. I'm good. I'm, you don't, I'm perfectly satisfied. The mask of superiority. I'm better than you are. I got my spiritual act together better than you do. I'm more holy than you are. Uh, it's a real subtle thing, but we, we do this, guys. We, we really do try to wear the mask of superiority. The mask of self-sufficiency. This is one we're all really good at as men, is that I am totally self-sufficient. I need no help. I need no directions. Don't tell me what to do. I, don't, I can carry this myself. I can load this into the car. I, I may bust a spleen doing it, but I, I'm self-sufficient. Please leave me alone. We wear that mask quite a bit. How about the mask of self-importance? Thinking that we are more valuable than we really are. Uh, that we have more to give than we really do have to give. Self-importance. How about the mask of competency? I am totally competent. 
I can take care of this. I can handle this. And so those things come into our lives that are pretty pressing, pretty tough, and we just, I, I put on the mask. I'm really not confident and competent, but I'm not letting you know that. I will make it happen. And I may fake it, and I may suffer, and I may end up screwing myself into the ground, but I'm going to be competent. I'm going to fake it as best I can. How about the mask of self-righteousness? That look at, look, at, look at me, I'm a self-made man. Look at what I've done with my life. And behind all these masks is a reality. It's the truth. And it's usually just the opposite of what the mask seems to portray. Self-righteousness, but inside unrighteousness. We are not what we appear to be. How about the mask of religion? This is rampant today. Uh, You know, you, you read the polls and there are more people claiming to be spiritual and claiming to go to church and claiming to believe in a deity and claiming to be believers and born again and But man, they sure don't look like it. But they're wearing the mask of religion. And then the mask of false humility. Oh, oh no, no, not me. Oh, oh no, don't. I just did it. Oh, no, it wasn't that big a deal. Yes, I did give that much money, but it, oh, no. No, it was actually more than that, but yeah. uh, yeah. And, And no, no one helped me. No, I did that all by myself, but I don't want any credit for it. But thank you anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, name that building after me and I will give you the money. The mask of false humility. Guys, we are, these are just a few of the masks we wear. Well, let's look at chapter 34, finally. Chapter 34, Exodus. And we're really not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but uh, I just feel like we got to go to the Old Testament um, or you don't get your money's worth. Verse 27, chapter 34, real quickly. Here's the context. Moses, up in the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights, he gets the law from God. The Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Chapter 34, verse 28. So he was there with the Lord, 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't eat bread or drink water. Sounds like a great time. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands. He was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. He had to call them back. They were so scared of his face. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near. He commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Do everything that God had commanded on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. What in the world is this all about? And why in the world have I chosen this particular part of the life of Moses. Well, to find out the answer to that, you need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, what little time I have left to cram in a whole lot. You're going to see in chapter 3 the other side of this story, and Paul's the one that unpacks it. And starting in verses 12 and 13, 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13, Paul says this about Moses. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses 
who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look, would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. See, Exodus 34 doesn't tell us this, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us there was a problem with Moses and the wearing of the veil. And I'm going to refer to that often as the mask. But he's wearing this veil, and it, it was because something had happened. Something was different. He originally put it on. Why? Because his face shone, and it scared the bejeebers out of the people. So he put a veil on. And then he would go up to God, take off the veil, get some more soaking, and then he'd come back down, and he'd have to put the veil back on. But in time, it started to fade. And the inference of Paul here is that he didn't want anybody to know that it had started to fade. So he kept wearing the veil. See, the veil was a symbol, and Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the Old and the New Covenant. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But that veil is a symbol of the Old Covenant. Because what did, what did Moses get up on the mountain? He got the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. He got the law. And he was bringing down, and he told the people to do everything this law commanded. So it's a symbol of the old law. It represented the keeping of a required standard of behavior. He got, remember, he was up with God, got the, the law from God, got the glory from God. His face shone because of what he received and what he received from God. The law and the glory came down and it it really represented for the people the glory of God in his face, but also the law that he also came down to give them, which was all about keep this law, do everything that I am commanding you to do. And that veil is that a symbol of the old covenant. And that'll make more sense as we move along here. But it also symbolized our natural inclination to obey the law. See, there's something wired in us as people that we love rules. You know, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me how to be a better husband. Send me to a seminar and give me five things to do. And that's all I need to know. And I'll do those five things for a week. And at the end of the week, I'll be down to two of them. And at the end of two weeks, I won't be doing any of them. But then I'll go to another seminar when my wife drags me there. We love rules. We love the idea of keeping rules. But we also like to break rules because of our sin nature. But inherently, we like to be told this is what I'm supposed to do. That's why some of the fastest growing religions in this world are those that are completely rules, self-effort based. Because people just want to know, tell me what I have to do and I will somehow do it. We inherently like rules. And it all results in a false sense of self-righteousness. When you have rules and you can keep those rules, you suddenly feel better about myself. You know, hey man, I, I'm, I'm really doing this thing. It's like when you get on a diet and you can keep the rules of the diet and you suddenly get proud of yourself. You may not be losing weight, but man, I'm, I'm sticking to these rules. I'm really pulling this off. And you get self-righteous. Or the other side of this is resignation and rebellion. You finally just go, I can't pull this off. I'm so stinking tired. I don't even want to try anymore. And then we just, we rebel the other direction. Forget the rules. I ain't doing this. And that's the story of the people of Israel all throughout their lives is resignation and rebellion. We can't do it. We're not going to do it. Well, back over in chapter 34 of Exodus, you see this, this shine. See, Moses has, has spent 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence 
And as a result, he had this glow on his face, the glory of God. But it was a fading glory. Why? What's the, what's the picture here? See, the law was never meant to last. It was never meant to be the answer to man's ills and man's problems. Verse 13, Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, the glory on his face was representative of the fact that the law was never meant to last. And I'm not telling you that the law has gone away. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus Christ came to complete the law, fulfill the law. But the demands of the law as a way to to righteousness and a right relationship with God we're going to fade away and be replaced with something better. The new covenant. Jesus Christ. Grace. Mercy. Verse 7 says, The sons of Israel couldn't look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was. See, he went up and he got this thing from God, this glory, this, this law, and he brought it down and his face was shining. And, and it, it shined for a while and it scared the people because it reminded them of the power of God and the glory of God and the law of God. And so he put the veil on. And as long as he wore the veil, it appeared as if he still had the glory, but it was fading. And it represents the fact that this rule-keeping system was never meant to last. But here we are thousands of years later, and we're still all about keeping rules, aren't we? If I can just do this, if I can just keep this, if I can just study more, go more, go to this seminar, go to that seminar, take another Sunday school class, if I can just memorize more scripture, if I can do, 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 it's still all about keeping rules, guys. That's not what it was meant to be. See, wearing masks can be hazardous to your health. They can be hazardous to your health. The law was a ministry of death. The law was a ministry of death. Actually, I skipped over one. I'm missing the slide. See, it was not meant to be permanent. The law wasn't meant to be permanent. The glory of the law was not to last. As soon as the people got it, guess what they began to do? They began to disobey it. They began to reject it. They found it oppressive. They found it condemning. They found like, man, I can't keep this thing. It's too tough. It's too hard. And the truth is man was never going to be able to keep the law. But we've been trying to do it ever since, haven't we? The veil also was a mask. It was a mask, not unlike this one here. It's a mask. And it seems like, and you read this passage, that the mask was Moses' idea. The veil was his idea. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, God said, hey, hey, you're scaring the people. Go put on a mask. Go put on a veil. You're, you're scaring the people. That was Moses' idea to do that. I think, if anything, God probably wanted the people a little scared. That's why he put smoke and fire on the top of the mountain. That's why he, he talked to them in thunder and lightning. He wanted the people to have a healthy fear of him. But Moses comes up with this plan of the the mask or the veil. Why? He was hiding something. He was hiding something. The true nature of his own spiritual condition. He didn't want the people to know that something was fading away. But I think in a way he was also falsely promoting something. Falsely promoting something. The ability of self-effort to achieve righteousness. See, by... Wearing the mask, what was he doing? He was, he was veiling the fact that the glory was fading. That 
when I'm not with the Lord, the glory's not there. It's not a permanent thing in my life. He was hiding the fact and promoting the fact falsely that self-righteousness really works. Self-effort can make me righteous. So I think all of this is tied up in what Paul is trying to say. And he's trying to tell us that these masks can be hazardous to our health. Paul tells us that the law was a ministry of death in this passage. The the law came to, to basically show that you can't keep it, and it always results in death. He says it's a ministry of condemnation. The law condemns us because as soon as the law came, it said, don't do this. The very thing that you're doing, stop doing it, and it condemns us. It screams at us. It's like when you're driving down the highway and you see the cop on the side of the road and suddenly you break out into sweat. Why? Why? Because you're breaking the law. If you're going 55 and a 55, you don't break out into sweat. You laugh at the guy next to you because he's going 70. And you just hope he gets pulled over. That's a whole other problem. But <laughs> if you're keeping the law, you don't sweat. But the fact the law condemns us. As soon as I see the cop, I break out into a sweat. And my kids go, Dad, what's wrong? And the car suddenly goes, mm, and it slows down. Dad, were you speeding? No, 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 I just... I saw something in the road. Uh, It condemns. It condemns. Trying to measure up will always let us down. That sounds real cute, but it's the reality and the truth. Trying to live up and measure up to God's standards will always let us down. Trying to be righteous will always result in guilt because you can't do it. You can't pull it off. Ah, man, I'm going to be so patient today with my kids. Fifteen minutes later, they wake up, and I'm no longer patient. I feel so, golly, I'm such a lousy dad. God, I'm a lousy husband. God, I can't do anything right. Why can't I get victory over this? Why can't I conquer this in my life? And we live with guilt because we can't seem to pull off what we think we're supposed to do. And we end up defeated, and we end up disappointed as men. See, that's the reality of the law. It can be dangerous and hazardous to your health. And it can only produce self-righteousness, not real righteousness. And this world does not need any more self-righteousness. We're up to here with it. We we don't need self-righteousness. We need true righteousness. Listen to this. This veil over Moses' face becomes a symbol of whatever interferes with and delays the work of the law. Paul has been telling us the law has come to kill us, to show us how completely useless it is for us to try hard to obey God. The law has come to make that real, to show us how absolutely futile it is to try. But a veil delays that. It makes us think we are really pleasing to God. We are fulfilling his commands. The veil, therefore, puts off the death that we need to come to in order to receive the life that God is willing to give. See, as long as I can fake it, as long as I can wear this mask and make everybody around me think I'm okay and I'm, I'm living the life I'm supposed to live, I suddenly start convincing myself. But I never do come to grips with the fact that I am flawed and I need his help and I can't pull this off. And it delays grace. It delays grace, which is the thing we all need. Before wearing masks are a form of protection. See, Moses was trying to preserve his reputation. I'm I'm convinced of that. He didn't want the people to know reality. And so we put on masks because we want to protect our reputation and we want to protect ourselves from anybody looking down on us and thinking ill of us. 
He was hiding the reality of his condition. Wear the veil? Hey, Moses must still be glowing like a light bulb. But reality was the glow had gone away a long time ago. I even think, and this is just conjecture, I think that you know, he, he used to take it off when he went back up to see God. I don't think it glowed. He was getting the glow that he got before. Because when he came back down, he would put it back on. See, if I'm Moses and it, I got the glow back, I'm taking the veil off and showing everybody, see, I, I'm not faking it, it's real. But I don't think every time he went up to see God, he got that same glow again. So as soon as he came off the mountain, puts the veil back on. The glow had gone away. The glow had gone away. The original giving of the law had already taken place. The 40 days, the 40 nights, it didn't happen every time he went up. See, he's hiding reality. His mask gave the impression that the glory was still there and he was hiding the truth. We hide the truth behind the mask that we wear. Whatever the mask is, we hide the real truth and we need to become transparent. See, I think these are some of the things that his mask represented. A false sense of competence, a false sense of power, a false sense of authority, a false sense of glory, a false sense of pride. And here's what he was doing. He used the mask to cover his fear and inadequacy, and that's what all masks do. We feel fearful, we fear, feel inadequate, and so we cover it up. And I'm telling you guys, I think one of the most refreshing things that can happen in this community, in this group, right here today, starting today, would be for us to finally take off the mask and go, you know what? I am not half as what you think I am. I'm not half as righteous as I appear to be. I don't have it together near as much as I try to put off. I am really struggling. You know, Ben and I were talking just recently about soul care, you know, the, the ministry to people who are struggling in our church. And soul care, you guys won't admit this, but I'll just say it because it's out there. You know, we all have this aversion to soul care. Soul care is for the, it's like the island of misfit toys. It, it's, it's, oh, I'm not going to soul care. That, those people are really screwed up. No, they're just honest. They're just honest. They just admit that I need help. And the rest of us are walking around wearing masks going, I don't need soul care. Yeah, you do. You need help. You may not have that addiction, but you got your own addiction, believe me. And see, we've, we've labeled soul care as the, the place where really sick people go, really hurting people go. Well, the truth is this whole church ought to be soul care because every one of us in this room is struggling with something, guys. We just don't want to admit it. And that's what's refreshing. If you go hang out with people in, the, in a 12-step program or, you know, AA, you know, they're sitting there going, hey, I'm an alcoholic and I'm, I admit it, you know, I need help. Why? Because they're ready to get help. And the rest of us are walking around wearing masks. Transparency, honesty, futile efforts, failed results. Trying to keep the law produces a false sense of pride. It does not work. And I'll blow through these last guys. We see in Exodus 24, 3, listen to what the people say. When Moses brought to the people, he said, it says he came, he recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Liars. Who are you kidding? You won't last a week. But oh man, they are, they are prideful, they're arrogant. We can do this. We can pull this off. We can make it happen. 
Trying to keep the law produces a false sense of satisfaction. Oh, man, I feel so good. I had my quiet time this morning. You know, this is, oh, I'm going to have a great day. And then you walk out the door and you've got a flat tire. God, God, where are you? What? I'm not having a quiet time tomorrow. Look what it did. Yeah. It's a false sense of satisfaction that doesn't last because it's all about you. And then something hits the fan and suddenly your day goes to heck in a handbasket. And it's, well, that stinks. That's what being a Christian brings me. Trying to keep the law produces a heart of contempt. We start looking at other people and we look at people in soul care and we go, oh God, they're screwed up. Or we look at the, you know, there was a guy who came just a few weeks ago, fresh out of prison, tattoos up one arm and up the other arm. And, and uh, he, he sits in the 11 o'clock service and he's worshiping, singing the songs. And the, the, the lady, blue haired lady next to him keeps looking over at him like checking out his arms. And finally he just, he got up and walked out and I'm at the information desk and he comes walking out there and I, I said, is something wrong? And he goes, I, I just, I can't sit in there. I said, why? And he goes, I just feel like I'm getting judged. This guy had come to Christ in prison and was looking for a place to worship. And all this woman could do was look at his tats. You know, going, oh gosh, what are you doing in here? Contempt, pride, arrogance. I'm better than you. I'm more holy than you. Look at me. I have a King James Bible. I've got, I've got more scripture memorized than you'll ever know. I bet you can't even read. Contempt. Trying to keep the law produces self-reliance. I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. I don't need sanctification. I can handle this myself. Trying to keep the law causes us to reject the need of a Savior. And even as Christians, we do this. Because we have rejected Christ in the process of sanctification. We do it every day. He saved me. Thank you, Lord. Got the ticket. But I got I to gotta sanctify myself. I don't need a Savior. I don't need the gospel every day. I just needed it to get saved. It got me out of hell, but now I got to get myself into heaven. See, we reject the need of a Savior. I can do it myself. So finally, guys, turn to the Lord. Verses 16 through 18. So this veil over Moses' face. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, the the veil's gone. The masks are off. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We are being transformed, guys. We are being transformed. See, Paul offers us a message of hope. When you turn to the Lord, the veil gets lifted. He removes the veil that masks our failure to measure up. He says, just take it off. Be who you are. Admit the fact that you're flawed. And he takes away all the things that hide the reality of our own inability. He just takes them away. And I'm going to close with this quote because it's really powerful. This is from a book I'm reading right now that somebody gave me. It's one of another number of books that I wish nobody had ever given me. And I started to read. But listen to this. You see, mask wearing is often more pronounced in Christians. All mask wearing is a product of pretending something to be true in our lives that our experience denies. Our pretending may be fueled by a sincere desire to make God look good by having our act together. He has no need for such help. But we think it is our duty nonetheless. So we cover our dirty laundry and think we're doing the right thing by modeling to the world how well God improves the lives of Christians. 
Instead, we usually just come off as weird, stiffly religious, proud, and working way too hard. This is from a book called True Faced. I highly recommend it. But gear up, because it's going to hit you between the eyes. We are set free, according to Paul, from having to measure up. I am free from having to work my way into heaven. I am free from having to measure up, guys. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty. We are set free from the curse of sin management, and we are set free to be holy and truly transformed. That's the freedom we have. Take off the mask. Admit what you are to those around you. Begin to confess to one another, you know what, I'm not as together as I appear to be. And you're going to find out that this room is full of guys who are struggling with the same issues. And when we admit it to one another and when we admit it to God, God steps into the equation. He says, finally, I'm going to get to work because you're going to stop working. And I'm going to do what only I can do, transform lives into the likeness of my son. That's true freedom. That's true freedom. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I come to you and and, uh, I just ask that you make some meaning out of the mess. Uh, That what's been said today, Lord, would be clear and concise and in some way would minister to the men in this room and to me that, Father, we desperately need to take off the masks. Father, we're fooling nobody. We're certainly not fooling you. We're not fooling ourselves because we go to bed at night and we are miserable and we're tired and we're worn out and we're... And we just get up the next morning, we put the mask on again, and we try to fool everybody around us. And Father, we just need to admit that we are flawed, but we have a Savior. And we have a Holy Spirit within us. And we have hope. And we have freedom in Christ. And we have the ability to be transformed, but it's not our ability, it's yours. And I look forward to seeing what you do in the lives of the men in this room as we begin to let our guard down, take the masks off, be transparent, walk around unveiled so that the glory of God can be reflected in our face to everyone around us. And they see his glory, even in our flawedness. Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be men who live for you. Moses was that kind of guy. He finally had to just quit wearing the veil. He finally gave up. He took it off. And you used this man in an incredible way. I pray that for me. I pray that for every man in this room. Take us from here. And some point today, help us take off the mask we're wearing. It's going to be hard. But we can do it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Guys, take your homework. We don't meet next week. Show up the week after that. And Mr. Bill Egner is going to be... uh, teaching. So show up.